Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings with two B's on Snapchat. And how could we forget the man behind it all, Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter? A must follow there for sure. However, to the show today, and we bring you an episode with what I'm calling a master of capital efficiency. With a laser focus on business model and building a profitable business, there are so many takeaways to be had from this interview. And so I'm thrilled to welcome Vinny Jane, founder and CEO at Ignite, the startup that delivers smart content collaboration in the cloud or on premises. They've raised over 60 million in VC funding from the likes of Kleiner Perkins, Google Ventures, and one of our favourites here, Mike Maples at Floodgate. Prior to Ignite, Vineet founded and successfully built Valdero, a supply chain software solution provider, funded by Kleiner Perkins, MDV, and Trinity Ventures. Before that, Vineet held a variety of senior operational roles at KPMG and Bechtel. I do also have to say a huge thanks to Mike Maples at Floodgate for the intro to Vineet today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we head into the show today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing. Constant Contact, Equid, and GoFundMe use WePay. Why? Because WePay uniquely helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zendesk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me. Visit wepay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with wepay.com forward slash Harry. And if WePay helps you navigate the world of payments, what about the same for mentorship? Say you hired a bunch of good engineers and the best way to retain them is to have a good leadership in place. That's where Plato can help. Plato is on a mission to help engineers and engineering managers become great engineering leaders by finding them the perfect mentor. Mentors are great engineering leaders working at Google, Facebook, Lyft, Slack, Trello, you name it. And for a monthly fee, you have unlimited mentorship, advice, and coaching from them in order to help resolving challenging management situations as they arise in real time. Simply head over to PlatoHQ.com to check it out. But enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Vinny Jain, founder and CEO at Ignite. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Vineet, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to the one and only Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Vineet. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'd love to kickstart though today with a little bit about you and how you made your way first into the world of SaaS. What was your entrance? In terms of true SaaS, so this is, by the way, my second startup, but uh, this is the first one with software as a service model. The previous one was, you know, classical perpetual license model, big implementation, long sales cycle. After we uh, finished that company, which was over four years, me and three others, we were thinking about what to do next. And the whole idea of how do people deal with unstructured data or files, as people call it. And at the early stages, it was the idea of could we move stuff into a multi-tenanted hosted model, which as people started calling the cloud. And so it started off from that perspective. And then, of course, um, the whole idea of pay-as-you-go model, which is typical SaaS model, uh, that kind of led to what Ignite is today. I'd love to hear then how the founding story for 
Free Night came. What was it that, that really kind of kick-started the engines? So, you know, once you've done one company, Harry, I'll tell you, it's so hard to go back to the corporate world or work in a big company. So we were like, okay, we got to do something else now. And a lot of ideas were being floated around. And to be totally transparent, sometimes I believe form over function. So I and the three others, which is the four co-founding team of Ignite, I actually registered a C-Corp. I took an office and we had no idea what we're going to do. And I told people, let's show up every day. And this is exactly what we did over a span of three months. Now, we had a semblance of an idea to say, when we look back at our corporate life or even our prior startup, there's always this thing that a company needs, a file server where data has to be stored, data has to be accessed. There's some kind of collaboration that happens within the enterprise. And we were thinking, could we move this um, into um, this uh, cloud model, get the efficiency of scale, and also start enabling things like remote access, which earlier used to be done with things like VPN, or even not just intra-enterprise collaboration, but inter-enterprise, that is across companies. And mobile was still an early odd phenomenon. It hadn't caught on that much, but it was there, nibbling on the edges. So the idea to say, could we build something at a corporate level for the enterprise? Because our pedigree has always been businesses. So you'll never catch me in a hoodie and flip-flops, even on a Friday, because, you know, we sell to the enterprise customers. This whole idea of building a platform in the cloud, catering to the enterprise mindset, was fundamentally what uh, Ignite started with and has become. I want to start, though, today on something that you've said to me before. And as a runner uh, myself, I can't not dive into this. So you said you've got to run your own race. Uh, I'm sure something that you've applied with Ignite. But what do you mean by this? And what's the kind of background thesis? Uh, It's interesting for you to say. uh, Glad to hear that we both are fellow runners. Uh, To be honest, I didn't know you were a fellow runner, but there you go. Are you a marathon runner or a 10K? No, no, no. I typically crank out. I run three or four times a week and I would average six miles per run. So Mm -hmm. six to eight. And one on Sunday, I'll probably do 10 miles. Uh, The only thing that I'm trying to maintain, sorry to digress here, is um, as I get older, I'm trying to make sure my distance remains the same, but the timing doesn't go down. So I'm still able to do 8.30 per mile uh, on a six-mile run, which I feel pretty good about. <laughs> well, well, I can tell you something. I'm a little bit younger than you, and I still do 8.30. Uh, so I'm, I think I need to shape up. But I, I would love to hear what you mean by running your own race. Sure, sure. With Ignite, the approach always has been you want to build a long-term viable business, which, of course, everyone aspires to. But how to go about doing that is always very different. So in the initial stages, it's typically, you know, a lot of losses and there's top line growth focus being sort of the focus. But over some respectable period of time, you need to have profitability and maybe, and I know it sounds still heresy in the Valley to say, I want to have EBITDA margin in my business model. Uh, After the first three or four years becomes, in my opinion, quite important to be able to ultimately get to a point of viability, uh, which could ultimately lead to being a public company, very good milestone to have. And therefore, not having this insane focus on top line growth at any cost, which is how a lot of companies are still operating today, while valuations are getting clobbered or questions being raised around profitability are becoming uh, increasingly higher crescendo. There is still that focus on the losses can be whatever. It's about top line growth. It's 70%, 100% year, year over year. And I refuse to believe in that model. So in the last three years, given that you know we'd built a good foundational business, a good customer base, uh, lots of users, um, in fact, a few million users on Ignite, all paid, by the way. The focus has been, can we get to a point of profitability or at least cash flow break even if we are not 
are profitable and being able to grow the company at a reasonable pace without having this divergence between the top line growth and the OPEX or the operational expenses. So I'm very proud to share with you for a company that has raised only $62.5 million since its inception and the last round of funding was in November 2013, we haven't raised money since then and we are growing at a very decent clip, which uh, is indicative of my belief to say build for the long term, build for viability, don't emulate what others are doing, including in the world of SaaS, which is predominantly now how software is being sold. And thereby, I love to use this term, I'm running my own race. It's not about just top line growth with no path to profitability or a path to profitability, which could be two to four years out. That's not the case for us. I'm really interested. You said there about kind of the importance of top line growth for many startups. How do you think about kind of satiating the VC appetite for for that top line growth with such a profitable mindset in in, in mind? And in particular, with, with the competition having the alternative mindset? Yeah, no, I've faced a lot of, I would say, challenges, even including in my own board, always this comparison with, hey, the company that you're competing with or your competitor vectors are um, growing at 70, 100% and you're growing at 45% or uh, around 41%. The focus was purely on that metric for quite some time. And I would say this was more around two and a half years back and less focus was given on your cash burn and operating uh, metrics or operational expenses. And truly speaking, as the market has tightened up, both public and private market in terms of valuation uh, that companies are getting, questions being raised around profitability, cash flow breaking, even. Even in my own board, the mindset started changing. And in the last couple of years, there's a lot more, I won't use the word admiration because that's too generous with the board, but a lot more respect for how we have operated, which has been, hey, keep both the metrics in mind. We still want to grow respectably. We don't want to be a small and yet profitable business because that's more a lifestyle play. But also keep in mind to say, what does it lead to? And I've always told my board, look, I will be able to grow this company where I will be, in my opinion, protected from how the valuations are happening in the public markets or the private markets because fundamentally it's a solid business model. And this year has been a good one for us because not only did we turn cash flow break even, in Q1 we actually turned EBITDA profitable and that trend has continued. So the respect you get from your own VCs or your own investors, which is predominantly most of them are VCs except for one independent, is a lot more different, uh, not just perceptibly, but they talk about it quite openly. And also it's helping with our customer base actually more than uh, just my investors because customers as you get bigger and bigger customers they want to partner with a company that's going to be long-term viable and we are able to um, pass muster with that kind of diligence do you think founders should communicate this desire for for profitability over the the insane growth uh, to investors pre-investment no you know there's a time and stage for everything because in the initial stages and i would say when you're getting off the gate or just starting off first three four years uh, typically you will have burn Uh, You will have not just nominal, but actual losses, and you will be focusing on top line growth or rather get your business model right. But after a certain point, whether it's four years, five years, or in some companies' cases, six or seven years, then you need to have uh, this focus on profitability start seeping in on how you're trying to scale the company. Uh, And at that point, even your um, investor um, VC firms should be aligned with you. Although you may have some dissonance sometimes because there are some VCs who are always about, hey, just top line 
growth at any cost. Keep going at it. But fortunately for us, I have a good blend of investors, whether it's Kleiner or Google or Mike Maples or Kareem. They are all aligned to the fact to say, hey, you're growing responsibly and at the right time. So timing is important, Harry. That's my point. I, I do have to ask so one final question on this topic. And it's when do you feel it's the right time to put the pedal to the metal, so to speak, and raise a big round and really go for the juggernaut? You know, I've thought a lot about it because we've also made mistakes in trying to uh, get this uh, answered in our own way of how we operate. I really think that any company, whether uh, you are, uh, you know, catering to the SMB mindset or even a consumer mindset or enterprise, you need to have at least one, if not two, go-to-market business models or go-to-market business notions that you know are now at a point where you can rinse and repeat. Once you have that, then it's time to raise a bigger round and, as you said, pedal, what, what's the term you use? Pedal to the metal. <laughs> pedal to the metal. Sorry the for pedal. that. Yeah, no, no. I'm still uh, being in this country for 23 years. I still have, I struggle with American aphorisms. <laughs> but ultimately, knowing where can you go for a rinse and repeat by pouring in more fuel on the fire, the fuel being uh, money, and knowing that, hey, this could scale in literally a linear correlation or sometimes exponential correlation, I think that's key. So getting one or two business uh, motion or go-to-market motions, right, is absolutely a must before you start spending a lot of money. Relatively stay on growth, but slightly take a different perspective and ask you, Brad Feld always told me, Harry, you have to live the rule of 40% for a healthy SaaS company. So I'd love to hear, I know you have some views on this, how do you interpret the 40% rule for a healthy SaaS company and what does it mean to you? Actually, this thing has caught on quite a bit in the Valley, uh, including, you know, folks like Byron Dieter talking about it quite a bit. And in fact, it's been a good topic of conversation in our last two quarterly board meetings. So clearly, this is a metric the investors are applying to companies, whether they're raising a new round or filing to go public. The way I interpret this model is basically you look at two metrics. One is what's your growth percentage, whether it's a quarter over quarter growth or whether it's year over year growth in terms of revenue. I think that's the most conservative number rather than bookings. Bookings tend to be higher. And then add to that, you have gap margin, uh, meaning profitability. So for example, example, you're growing, let's say, 30% year over year, which is, for most people, is not exciting growth. It's reasonable growth, uh, although lately people say it's not bad. And then if you're having, let's say, a profitable uh, margin of profitability margin of 8%, then you're adding it up to say, hey, my metric is 38, which is pretty close to the rule of 40. Now, ideally, if you were to build a graph and there was this line which represents 40, you want to be on the other side of the rule of 40, that it's either you should be close to 40 or north of 40 because you will find situations where some companies have 70% growth, which is fantastic. But when you look at their profitable margin or uh, EBITDA margin, it's actually negative, let's say uh, 40%. Then the overall score tends to be a lot lower as compared to just purely looking at the top line growth metric. And it's interesting how this has been used to value companies. It actually can have a, quite an impact on your valuation. I, I do want to talk to you about that then and that kind of um, misses assessment that can be made when looking at kind of enormous growth rates uh, and its potential to kind of skew the figures. How do you think uh, of this potential flaw and and does it kind of denigrate the use of the 40% rule altogether? You know, it varies uh, based on the current market climate at that point or the industry you're competing in because there are companies which have had spectacular growth rates, uh, whether it's 70% or 60%, but uh, have huge operational losses and those losses are still continuing to remain the same in terms of percentage terms, they would have a challenge for sure in terms of how they would get valued or if they're a public entity, the stock would take a beating. So 
I don't think in today's climate, you can just sustain and build long-term viability purely looking at the one metric, which is just the top line growth. You have to factor in the other metric also uh, and thereby subscribe to this rule of 40 because it's a combination of these two metrics. How does this rule differ across the differing stages of company life cycle? That's uh, pretty straightforward because, you know, in the initial stages, you will absolutely have losses for sure. (laughs) So that metric is going to be negative. You will have negative EBITDA margin. And top line would be, of course, uh, in terms of percentages, given that you're starting with relatively no base, uh, that would be very high. And ideally, I would think, uh, and I'm going back to my own experience, Harry, that in the first four to five years, the laws of lower numbers, of course, helping you, you need to be showing 100% growth. And the losses would be fairly significant. But after a certain point, and I remember talking to Mike Maples about it, uh, he and his firm had done a research on very successful companies. Typically, there is a successful exit for most companies north of their sixth year. And I think that sixth year, you need to start focusing on the second metric and try to get that to converge to either zero or something positive so that the top line growth that you're accruing uh, has a much higher multiplier effect on how your company is going to be valued, whether you get acquired or whether you go public or whether you're raising a new round. Ultimately, the benefits will accrue all in all those three uh, situations. We, we spoke about the two core metrics there that make up the 40% rule. I'm intrigued. I had Dave Kellogg at Host Analytics on the show the other day, and he said that CAT to LTV was his truly defining metric. Would you agree with this? And, and what's the metric that you always go to to assess the health of Ignite? Any good SaaS model, the CAC ratio, the lifetime value, which of course factors in the churn and the net upsell, uh, those are very important metrics. But personally, I actually subscribe to metric beyond these two to really gauge the health of my business, which is the customer satisfaction. Believe it or not, beyond 100%, I believe that you must, while we all want to build a long-term, profitable, viable business, the customer sat is so important for you to continue to grow as a company, for you to, you know, and one of the things people talk about in SaaS is land and expand, right? You must have heard this from plenty. I really think that's a misnomer. It's a land, expand, and explode. Why do I say that? And why would I say in the context of uh, customer sat is as follows. So imagine that you are trying to sell into a thousand person company. You won't start with thousand people on the get-go. It rarely happens. You will probably start with sometimes a department or sometimes, uh, let's say, 100 to 200 seats. And then after six months to nine months, if your product is doing what it said it's going to do, if the users are loving using your product, then you will get to the expand where the 200 seat could become 500 seats. And there's always a third leg in most cases where after a couple of years or year and a half, 18 months, the company decides, why don't we roll this out company-wide? And they'll then negotiate an ELA with you, an enterprise-wide license. All of this is predicated on how much are you focused on customer satisfaction? And there are metrics people use. So one of the ones which is very common is the NPS, the net promoter score. But there are other metrics, for example, on the support side, uh, on a monthly basis, we get a report. I get a report, which is how many tickets were locked? What's the rate of ticket growth? What was the rate of closure? And you do a survey with these customers when they close a ticket. Typically, the response rate is around one third. Uh, what are they responding back with? What score did they give you? So when you look at this multivariant analysis, which ultimately is about customer satisfaction, that to me is more important than just looking at uh, CAC and LTV. Because if you're doing well on there, believe me, it'll have a beneficial impact on your LTV in any case. And a CAC will improve because you are doing to going to do more and more upsell into the same accounts. Or if you've gotten into a legal entity within a large multi-corp, you'll get into other operating companies within the same multi-corp. No, absolutely. 
absolutely. I also think it dramatically reduces your CAC in terms of word of mouth branding. But I'd love to dive into a quick fire round. So I'm going to say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts in 60 seconds or less. How does that sound? No questions about Trump. No, no, of course not. This is not a political show. But what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started? I wish um, I had fired some people sooner than I did. What was the thesis behind that? You know, we all tend to believe in the goodness of humankind and we believe that people will turn around or we give more time even if things are not working because we have the hope and also the fact that you initially ended up hiring them you want to keep believing in your own selection criteria it's like buying stock right you fall in love with them i think that's one area if i could dial back time i would do it differently how long is long enough i'll tell you this at this point i would know within a span of two quarters whether this person's going to cut it or not what hire do you wish you'd made earlier one area where i think i under invested uh, was customer success we were so focused on top line growth uh, or rather new business and upsell and while our churn was remarkably low it is still low we under invested in the customer success side because we thought hey we are upselling very well our churn is low we can focus on other areas and now it's becoming more and more apparent to me to say as we get into these very large accounts the fortune 2000 types we should have invested a lot more on customer success not so much for selling them more but to drive that metric i was talking about which was you know the customer happiness or the nps or whatever the metric is Mm -hmm. what are the breaking points in the scaling of SaaS companies this is your second startup Uh, you've seen ignite scale immensely what are the breaking points your inflection points one of the most basic ones i would think is you will struggle nobody gets it right the first time in my opinion and you will have to be experimenting quite aggressively with different uh, go-to-market models different playbooks uh how you segment the market whether you know in terms of size of companies or by verticals but you must get out of let's say 10 things you're trying you have to get to a point that at least three start working and then those three should be doubled down on that to me would be critical because if it takes too long to figure out or if you try to pivot too much meaning you started on going the straight line you will end up going around 30 percent left or right but if you have to do more than 45 percent it's going to be a struggle i don't know if you can survive that so therefore i think um, it's getting the business model right and making sure you have the right product market fit uh, as quickly as you can and that quickly could be one or two years in my opinion is absolutely critical i'd love to finish today on on that exact note uh, how do you define product market fit in today's very transient world of SaaS? you know it's interesting when people bring up uh, the product market fit the example that's always given is apple newton if you remember ahead of its times and today of course it's all about those kind of devices in our case when we started off clearly the initial adopters is your uh, the SMB market, the small medium businesses, which I define as a thousand employees or below. And as you start selling more and more to them, we started seeing a trend that if you recall, you know, that bell curve of adoption that they teach in MBA schools, it started with the early adopter in the mid market, early adopter in enterprise. And the minute it went mainstream, where suddenly you start seeing a line item in people's budget for our class of solutions, you know that you have arrived, your company has the right product market fit. And furthermore, people are talking more and more about your own approach on how to do things. And in our case, one of the things I would be remiss if I don't mention, when we started the company, while we were trying to have this file server in the cloud, I was a huge believer and I still remain today. I said, look, we're taking something that is run behind the firewall and we're moving this to the cloud, which is, you know, the unstructured data and then the file services on top. I basically said there will be a gradually accelerating movement of data to the cloud, but the role of on-prem infrastructure, the role of on-prem storage is not going to be supplanted 
it'll be mutating and the world will become hybrid. The analogy I used was the mythical paperless office where, you know, we were told that everything's going to be digitized. We still have paper, albeit in more specialized forms. So this whole idea that the world's going to be hybrid, you won't believe, Harry, for the first five and a half years, we used to be regarded by lots of people to say, oh, you're swimming upstream. Everything's going to go to the cloud, you're transient. Literally in the last two and a half, three years, the pendulum swung more to a point of equilibrium, which coincided with the adoption curve going mainstream in mid-market, where people start saying, yeah, the world's going to be hybrid. There is cloud, but the role of on-prem is going to mutate. It will not completely disappear. And that's where I started feeling, while you know some people regarded as pre-signed, and it's nice to get your ego gratified when people say, hey, you saw this coming. But it kind of translates into the class of customers that start coming to you, the class of companies that want to start talking to you, because you give them not a straight jacket to the cloud, but I would literally call it training wheels to go to the cloud. So that kind of stuff helps if you can stick to what your belief is and the market proves you right to say you have the right product, it fits in with what the market needs. Vineet, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. As I said, I heard so many great things from both Jason and especially Mike Maple. So thank you so much for joining me today, Vineet. All right, thank you so much for the opportunity. You have a great day. Now, I'm sure you'll join me in saying what a fantastic episode that was with Vineet, and you must check him out on Twitter and check out this handle, Cloud Not Enough. Simply follow Vineet on Twitter at Cloud Not Enough. That has to be one of my favourites. Or you can follow us on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs. See all things behind the scenes from the team at Sasta. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, I want to tell you about WePay. WePay helps online platforms increase revenue through integrated payments processing. Constant Contact, Equid, and GoFundMe use WePay. Why? Because WePay uniquely helps platforms offer ROI-positive integrated payments to their users within their UX and without taking on fraud and regulatory exposure. Others make you trade off between UX friction or fraud, not WePay. WePay also offers award-winning support and can even work with your team through Slack or Zendesk. Get the payments revenue you want without getting bogged down every time a user has a payments question. But don't trust me. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry for a video case study on how Equid grew its revenue while better serving customers with WePay. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. You'll also be made eligible for a year of free premium support with WePay.com forward slash Harry. And if WePay helps you navigate the world of payments, what about the same for mentorship? Say you hired a bunch of good engineers and the best way to retain them is to have a good leadership in place. That's where Plato can help. Plato is on a mission to help engineers and engineering managers become great engineering leaders by finding them the perfect mentor. Mentors are great engineering leaders working at Google, Facebook, Lyft, Slack, Trello, you name it. And for a monthly fee, you have unlimited mentorship, advice, and coaching from them in order to help resolving challenging management situations as they arise in real time. Simply head over to PlatoHQ.com to check it out. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.